As people develop their core values, it's probably the biggest decision they make as a business leader because every decision has to run through that filter. And if it doesn't accurately, then people are going to call you out on it. And all of a sudden, credibility goes down really quick. That was Nick Smirelli, CEO of GadelNet Consulting Services. Nick's going to share how GadelNet has become an award-winning company by believing in an employee-first value that is proving to be an excellent investment for this fast-growing company on Episode 19 of the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Dix. GadelNet Consulting Services has multiple offices, and its CEO, Nick Smirelli, calls Indianapolis home. Nick has stewarded GadelNet into a leading IT services provider who is B Corp certified. He's done so by instilling his personal values into corporate-wide values that embody what he believes to be an overall approach to doing business that puts the growth needs of his employees first as an investment into the growth of GadelNet overall. I began my conversation by asking Nick to share the GadelNet founder story. I do think the the founding story of kind of where where we got started and how we got started is is a good place to go because I think it's all kind of additive to where we are today, even in terms of kind of where our fundamental values are as an organization. So I'll start. I'll, I promise to be brief. It's it's seventeen and a half years of change, frustration, happiness, joys, and anxiety, but started in 2003 by an individual named Joe Goodell. So Joe, Tom, and myself were actually the three owners of GoodellNet, friends from college. So we all went to school in St. Louis. As soon as I graduated, I wanted out, moved to New York City, then moved to Shanghai, Charlotte, Atlanta, and then Indy. So my career before GoodellNet kind of pushed me all around the country. But I joined in 2010. I was employee number four. And the good thing about that is when you're employee number four, you can come up with great titles for yourself. So I was chief operating officer and had that title up until about 2015, where I moved into the CEO seat and kind of uh, sat in that position since that point. But we, we started off as St. Louis only. And then we opened up an Indianapolis office about six and a half, seven years ago. I told you where I've moved all around. And for me, I didn't really want to move again. We'd moved here and I, I moved here I would say begrudgingly, and then quickly fell in love with the Midwest and Indiana. Um, and we kind of created a nice home here. Didn't want to move back to St. Louis. So we opened up an Indianapolis office. 45 or 50 employees later here, 100 or so employees back in St. Louis. We've grown ra- rather rapidly in that, in that short period of time. We've got two offices in, in two different states. Secret insight is we're opening up another office in another state. Can't tell you where that is, but we, uh, we are growing our, our footprint. And since the beginning, one of our core values is this idea of making an impact. And we've made it very clear that the idea of impact is, is bigger than just profit and revenue. It's how are we touching the communities we serve, the environment, the employees, the employees' families, the clients and the clients' families. We really spend a lot of time as, as kind of part of our growth strategy is really talking about how does our growth affect our stakeholders and not stakeholders in the way that I think traditional businesses think about it. We've always kind of made that a big foundational element of, of who we are as a company. But like I mentioned, we're about 130 some employees now across both offices. It's interesting that you said you fell in love with Indiana and with uh, the Indy area. What specifically kept you here? What, what really worked for you? It's always interesting to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, I've lived some really, really neat places and I'm not shameful in saying I came here and I couldn't believe that my life trajectory had had fallen. And, and I'm, I'm, so apologetic to myself and probably the comments that I made, you know, 11 years ago, because I was just, it was naive. And I think Indianapolis has really turned around that reputation. But for me, it, I was concerned it wasn't going to be kind of progressive and fast moving. I think we're, my wife and I are both Midwesterners. I grew up in Chicago. She grew up in, in Wisconsin. So we've always kind of had that Midwest ethos, that kind of perfect balance, I think, be, between kind of the, the West Coast, the kind of the East Coast kind of pushing things. So kind of that really good good mix of, of both of the coasts coming together. Again, I think we love the people. We love the accessibility as a cheap person with a startup business. You know, the cost of living was, was certainly a wonderful asset for the first few years. It allowed me to aggressively put dollars towards the business instead of having to, you know, pay you know, gigantic mortgages like we had when we were living in Atlanta. So for me, it really kind of helped I would say springboard us as a company to where we are now. And I think what we found here is we really love the employee base that we're able to kind of capture as, as people are sticking around more, people are having families here more. So if you look at our profile, I don't know the official statistic, but if, if I had to make up something, 75% of our people have families. And so I think the really kind of family-oriented atmosphere of Indianapolis has really been perfect for bringing people on. 
that really understand who we are because they are more than just IT engineers. They're IT engineers, there's parents, there's spouses. And we like those type of people because it really kind of falls in line with our values. So we've we've really appreciated it. So both from a personal perspective and our friendships that we've crafted along the way as 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 a family, but also kind of how it's affected our business and allowing us to, I would say, really kind of catapult off of the way that we're structured here in Indy. So you've been a seven-time Inc. 5000 growth company. You were on Inc.'s best places to work. You're a top 25 growth company uh, in both the St. Louis and Indianapolis business journals. You're a top 50 managed services provider. How in the world have you been able to accomplish so much in such a short time? What's the secret sauce? Gosh, you would think I'd be prepared for this question. And, and again, it's it's one of those things where you kind of spot the awards and it's it's very kind of humbling to see kind of where we've come from. I do remember, I think it was 2011, I was sitting in a client's office and they had the Inc. 5000 thing up and I'm like, you know, those companies, they really got their stuff together. I, I still very much remember kind of that that feeling. You know, I think it's really, I think our secret sauce is, is I think a fewfold. I think in some capacity for me as a leader, I have no idea how to fix a computer. I am not a tech guy. So it opens my brain space to not get involved in specifically serving the needs of our clients in the way that is kind of a traditional engineering. Um, my job is to staff people that augments the fact that I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to technology. I think it's really given me the time and capacity to be a business leader. I always say kind of my best skill set as a leader is I'm a curator of great ideas. I'm not the guy that sits in a meeting and you're just awestruck by the ideas that I come up with but I'm really good at sitting in that meeting, listening to everybody else who's smarter than me and picking the good ones and then putting them together and getting people on board with those. We've had that and I think what that has allowed us to do is is hire really good people. We have, you know, we got into a fight. I think it was, again, I'm gonna go back till 2012, maybe 2013. We got into a fight as a leadership team is where is our biggest priorities at our clients or our employees? And we really level set on this idea of take care of our employees and our clients will follow. And, and you know, that Southwest Airlines, I suppose, model. And that has really been our secret sauce is everything we do is how does this affect the employee? And I think as a result of that, we've differentiated ourselves in the market to the extent that I think clients realize the value of, of who we are. Because at the end of the day, solving computer issues and fixing things is, I sell human intellect. I sell human time, um, which sounds a bit more creepy than it actually is. But the reality is that's what you're paying for when you work with us. And so for me, it's how do I grow and assemble the greatest humans possible in the markets that we're in. And I think it sounds cliche and a bit probably trite, but it really has been the focus of the company. And as a result, downstream, we have now taken care of our clients, or we have great people who really care about serving the communities, and we have great people that are serving others. And so as a result, it's kind of this downstream effect that really we've just focused on the employees and everything else kind of came along with it. And, and they really brought those ideas that helped make us a good company. It's interesting. You, you say that you are, are not a tech guy, and, and you actually have a background in psychology and finance, correct? That is correct. Very competing priorities. If, again, if you had like a little cartoon in my brain, I think you'd see, you know, the finance guy punching the psychology guy most of the time. At the end of the day, I got made fun of in college for, for being so focused on psychology. I loved organizational psych. I love the just kind of understanding people. But end of it, that's kind of what we're in. And I can, I can source out, and we do, outsource all of my finance functions to, to somebody else to do that work. But the, the hearts and minds part, you can't source out. So I'm, I'm thankful that I have that as a background. And I can use a computer, but I've really leaned into my lack of technical knowledge as part of that. My background was actually in process management. So I worked on a shop floor. So understanding kind of how processes work together. Technology is just a process. And how do you integrate technology into a process? So that has always come easy to me. But as far as how emails work or how this call was happening, magic, I think would be my answer. And, and that's kind of how, how it works. Well, Nick, it's interesting because you are selecting and you're leading uh, engineers and tech people. And to be admittedly not a tech person yourself, what special challenges has that presented and, and how have you overcome that? I think the biggest challenge, and I still struggle with it, is just really being open and honest with the fact that I have to gain credibility across our clients and our employees, not because. I am better than them at their jobs, which sounds kind of weird. I think a lot of people, again, you move up in a marketing function, move up in an engineering function. It's the people that even the you know, sales manager 
generally those people oftentimes are the best and highest performing salesperson or the highest performing engineer. And they move up and they're moving to a bigger role because they have the intellect there. I've never had that. So I came in in 2010 and said, I am your boss now. And I have no idea how you do what you do. And I think that has always been a humbling experience for me. And I think it's really forced me to truly understand what am I good at and then really lean heavily on others to be exemplary at the stuff that they're good at. I've really tried to kind of take that challenge and discomfort with not having that expertise and really forcing others to be good at their jobs. And I think as a result of that, now that we're bigger, you know, the big challenge is how do you shed those roles? I'm like, I've been practicing shedding roles since the beginning here. You know, I've, I've been very comfortable with saying I'm not good at this. And so as I've grown as CEO and people are taking bigger chunks of my jobs away and I truly live as, as the visionary part of the company, you know, that's, that's been a challenge. So it's been fun, but very humbling, especially in the early days where people come to these major client issues and I couldn't coach them through it. And that felt uncomfortable to me. But obviously now it's, now it's just a running joke of just kind of how it is. And I have really smart managers that take care of all that stuff on my behalf. And I'm very thankful for how smart they, they are. As the company has grown, uh, the organizational complexity has obviously increased. And how do you deal with your professional development and growth in ways that keep you from becoming obsolete uh, inside of an organization that is growing at such a rapid pace? Absolutely. Well, one of our values is grow or die which again, I, I always joke that our HR person was really anxious about when I said that that's one year value. And you know, it's since become, he's materialized and growth isn't just about how Gedelnik grows. It's talking about growth across the entire organization. And so for me, I'm very, very active. My, my parents are both teachers. So for me, growth and learning, again, going back to that concept of humility is I am always challenged to find places that I'm really bad at and finding kind of opportunities to either learn or find somebody to kind of fill those gaps. I've invested a lot. I'm part of uh, YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization. So I, I'm part of a group there of, of eight other individuals who on a very regular basis tell me I'm garbage at my job and, and I, I can do better at what I'm doing. Or I see the way that they're leading their companies and realize I can be better. And so I surround myself with successful people that are more intelligent than me in different areas. And I contribute in some way. I think a lot of my learning is teaching other people what I know in ways that are strengths of mine have become even stronger strengths and weaknesses have either been filled in and or has, have been exposed as weaknesses. And I bring people there. I'm a total nerd with reading. I probably read three to four books a month, some business, some really highly intelligent nonfiction and some grossly just ridiculous thriller type fiction novels that just you know you can get through 400 pages in an evening and and love every minute of it so i i kind of i try to mix it up a bit but i do believe in the power of reading and then podcasts like yourself and and others of just kind of hearing people's stories like i mentioned i'm a i'm a curator of ideas and so for me it's the more chances to hear other people the the better it is for me We will continue my conversation with Gadel Net Consulting Services CEO Nick Smorelli after this brief word from our sponsor. AD Growth Advisors Incorporated is an Indianapolis executive coaching and advisory firm that specializes in helping conscious capitalists benefit corporations, B Corps, and nonprofits to be their best at doing their good. As a board-certified executive coach, I spend a lot of my time helping my client organizations create cultures of inclusive collaboration. All too often, our interpersonal relationships can become strained by what researchers call effective or relationship conflicts. Effective conflict is created when personalities clash, value differences are extreme, and when we naturally misinterpret someone else's motives as being insensitive, objectionable, or offensive. We judge the person as having a character defect instead of just having a difference of opinion. These interpersonal conflicts can create extreme dysfunction in an organization. And up until now, we really didn't have a reliably effective approach to reducing effective conflicts. My client organizations have found great value in using the science of motivation to increase individual understandings of the value differences that cause effective conflicts. When it comes to values, opposites don't attract. They are intensely motivated to argue. If your organization is having severe people problems, then let's talk about using the science of motivation to create a work environment and culture where inclusive collaboration and teamwork can thrive. To learn more, 
please call me at 317-538-3231 or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Now back to episode 19 of my conversation with Nick Smorelli, CEO of GoodellNet Consulting Services on the Hopeful Hoosier podcast. Obviously, you're, you're doing really, really well, and you're creating a culture that, that people are gravitating to and in an environment where sometimes it's hard uh, to find qualified tech people. You're doing probably uh, best in class there. If we went out and we talked to one of the longer-term employees, maybe, maybe an engineer, and asked them why they chose to stay with GoodellNet, what do you think they'd say, or, or at least what would you hope they would say? I think for us, if you if you look at it, I think the number one thing that people say, we do this kind of weekly introducing somebody to the company, just because we've gotten bigger. So we like to tell their stories. And the last question is, what's your favorite part about GoodellNet? And I would say thematically, it's not Nick Smurley, the CEO. Sometimes it's the executive team as a whole. It's really the people that they get to be with. And I think smart people want to be surrounded by other smart people. And so I think by showing that we hire a high standard and they're part of an interview process that shows that we really kind of cut out any individuals that wouldn't get who we are, makes them feel very proud to be that. So I think really, if you, if you had to think of the first one, it would be that. I think the second one is clarity and, and expectations around their personal growth is this feeling that we invest in them. So with any luck, that person that's been here for, let's say, five years the story they tell you is I came here as an engineer and then I became a team lead and then I'm running you know, X part of the business. Or I'm still an individual contributor, but I've taken these training courses, I've moved different teams, and I've learned a whole bunch of new things. So with any luck, as part of their answer, they tell you a story of where they came in at and where they currently are and saying that in some way we've enabled that in some capacity. So I would say those are probably the two things that really stand out amongst kind of a myriad of things that, that make up our culture. You know, IT is just growing and growing every day and, and redefining itself and changing the definition. Where would you say or what would you say is, is sort of the sweet spot for GoodellNet in, in that space? We really, really try to focus our efforts around the small business space. And I think that still feels big and I'll narrow it down here in a second. But I would say, you know, for us, the tempting offers of the multi-zero dollar uh, invoices are, are are tempting, but the reality is focusing on clients, kind of the four to 500 people and less has really been a, a good focus for us. That's helped limit the amount of technologies we have to be involved with and allowed us to really focus our trading efforts on, again, to your point, the sweet spot of really what's impacting small companies. Our sweet spot, and if you look at that, is again that 25 employees to about 500. And the people that like working with us are clients that I would say understand our brand and our ethos, again, in the sense of they really understand that, you know, it's the person picking up the phone is going to ask them about their day. And they're going to understand that, you know, that person who has got an Excel issue, who's a controller, is meeting with the CFO and is freaking out because they're going to, you know, they're worried they're going to lose their job. It's not just that their computer isn't working. So understanding really that, that part of it. But generally, most of our clients are fast growing. Um, a lot of them are investing. They want to be somewhere in, again, not necessarily bleeding edge, but if you had a, you know, kind of Pareto it out, they want to be on the, the, the leading edge of, of technology. And they realize that technology is going to impact their business. So people like working with us who get that. People that kind of want to be stagnant with technology or don't see it as a strategic thing, then most of the time don't want to work with us. And so for us, we really try to kind of focus on that niche and. You know, in the last few years, the good thing about us being a bigger company is I can hire smarter people because they command obviously more salary to work on things like, and I mentioned process, is what are your workflows and how do we integrate technology into that process? How do you create a better client experience with technology? So how do I serve my clients in a different way? How do I protect my business? How do I serve my employees and create a you know world-class culture? So for us, a big part about investing our culture is also something to sell to clients in the sense of, you know, we've built a great culture. Here's the technology we use. Be like us in the sense of here, here's the technology stack that has helped us, you know, really understand our employees' needs and translate them to to business action. So a lot of the investment in the culture has also been a, a way to say we want other clients to replicate that. And I feel like you go back to impact is my impact is even bigger if other clients start doing what we're doing, which means that other people are coming to work and they're excited to come to work. Like that's 
can't get much better than that. So not only are you a solution provider, but in essence, you know, every employee is a user as well, right? Oh, there's no question. That's the fun and and scary part of things is, you know, every every employee is is demoing or, or on our R&D team for our, on our client's behalf as we test out certain software and we can now consult actively in, in terms of selling that to our clients. You believe in three corporate values. You've shared one, which was grow or die. Tell me about the other two. Sure. The other one is a principle called 100% responsibility, 0% excuses. And I actually run a podcast called Zero Excuses because that one is... And people always ask, what's my favorite? And I, I think it's actually grow or die, if I can be totally honest. But I, the zero excuses, I think, comes back to perhaps that earlier question of what makes us different is I have very little patience for a few things. My, I, I would say I, I'm a man of high patience. I have three kids under eight. So I, I think I've purposely gained some of that, that skill set. But you know, for me, I think people that commit to something and then back out or come two minutes late, I have very little patience for. I have very little patience for people that don't understand that they can control the reaction to things. They may not be able to control the world, but they can control the reaction to things. And I have very little patience for people that look at my life or look at your life or look at others that are probably on the show and say, you know, they were lucky or here's the factors and here's why I could never do that. And for me, I've always kind of had this mentality of taking accountability for what you can control. And I believe in kind of the the human potential. And so this is the zero excuses mentality is, is a huge part of our company culture. So we talk a lot about that in terms of we're not a perfect company. We do a lot of things really bad. It's not to scare things away, but we have to be honest with ourselves. And there's, I always say we're a good company, not a great company yet. And you know, for me, if you're going home to your spouse and complaining about something at the company and you haven't started a committee, you haven't come to me and said, hey, I need $2,000 to solve this issue, then you're probably not a great fit for the company. We want people that are, I, I want more training. Great, go get it. Don't wait for us to, to offer you training. So really that zero excuses comes from that. And then the, the third and final one is this idea of making an impact. And that one is talks about kind of how do we impact each other, our clients, our communities. And really that goes back to why did we decide to be a B Corp is this idea of how do we quantify and be held to a higher standard by a third party to say, truly, are we a great company giving back to our communities? Or are we just saying it? And I think for us, again, you looked at LinkedIn, you looked at other people that say, oh, you know, we love our communities. Well, great, prove it. And, and B Corp in some way has been our chance to you know, we have people that came in and audited what percentage of our profits go back to charities. They see the way that we do things. They see the way that we manage our employees. They see what I do personally to give back. And, and they verify that we, we are held to this super high standard. And that was important to me to going back to that, that make an impact value. Being certified as a B Corp is uh, no small task. It requires a lot of commitment, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and it's an ongoing process as well. Tell me, what do you think the biggest challenges uh, in becoming certified were for Godelnet? I would say the amount of paperwork. <laughs> somewhat joking, but but somewhat not. Yeah, that was, and we actually got certified right at the height of coronavirus. So really, really some strong planning there. And, and, and all joking aside, the reason we did that was we believe that the true testament of a good company culture is I act the same way when it's good times or bad times. If I say my employees are number one, and then when times get really tough and I immediately let go of employees and cut corporate benefits and you know cut the way we do things, were employees actually that important or is money more important? And so for us, it's this idea of make an impact. Was it that important? And we said, yes. And not only that, we're gonna, actually, we're gonna get a B Corp during the pandemic. I would say the hardest part for us is we, it's been about two years for us to kind of finalize the way that we had to change some of the ways that we track things and measure things. We got solar panels at our headquarters in St. Louis so that we could meet some of the environmental requirements. We've had to change the way we recycle old computers and manage our own internal paper. We had to look at, again, even just having money to donate. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think people think I'm a tech company. I'm making great profit margins. We're a service company. And yes, we make money, thankfully. I mentioned those three kids that continue to, to look at me for food. But at the end of it, we're growing and we're reinvesting and we're training people and there's costs to that. So, you know, the biggest challenge for us is really shuttling aside cash expenses, especially during a pandemic, to say that we want to continue to invest in the standards that B Corp has set for us. And I think that for us is hard, but, you know, it was ended up being a clear decision, not an easy decision. I think easy and clarity are two different things sometimes. And I think for us, it was, it made it very clear that a big investment like a B Corp was the right move. And 
you know, it's just now it's it's us. We we developed the 2021 budget. It's it's a line item of the budget as kind of what those expenses are going to be, and we had to craft the the strategy around it. And you know, that was a certainly a challenge. Would have made budgeting a lot easier if I didn't have to do that. But I think it really forced us to be a better company, and I'm thankful for that because I, I think I don't know if we would have done that with without kind of that that oversight. If you sat down with uh, the members of your uh, young presidents association group and and they were going to grill you on nick why are you going this b corp route why not as a growth company just pour it on and be profitable don't worry so much about purpose what would you respond to them i think the cool thing at least from what we found so far so checking in with me in about a year is i think one begets the other functionally speaking i think and i hope and i'm betting on in some way, is we have always believed this. And we haven't believed it for marketing reasons. We've believed it because it's important. And we think that that's, you know, as a as a business owner of a hundred plus person company, I have, okay, we're not gigantic, you know, certainly, but we have impact and we have capabilities to do bigger and better things. And as a business leader, now I have a responsibility to, to use that for good. But I also do think that clients choose to be with us. They choose to stick with us. They choose to pay their bills on time. They choose to tell other people about us. Employees want to work for us that are great people, that see the value in giving back. They see the value in being a good human so that when that phone call comes in at 502, they're not checking out. They're saying, hey, part of being a big, big a good human is helping this person out with this whatever request so that they can go home and be a great parent to their uh, families and not be worried about an IT issue for the next two days. Those are the type of people that work for us. And I think to me, I'm hoping that continuing to invest in the those type of people and those type of decisions will find the right clients that want to partner with us, that believe in who we believe and how we believe, and also employees that believe the same thing. And I think you put those two together, and I would argue I will be growing faster than others that don't believe that. So yes, is there a direct ROI to what we spend there? No, but I do believe very much that there is a correlation and, and truly that, that spirit that we've cultivated and is still very young, we could do way better for the record, is going to provide and bring on the right clients and the right employees doing really cool things. So as a CEO, you have just gone through the COVID proving ground. (laughs) What have you learned? And if you had to do that all over again, what might you do different? Okay, well, uh, what have I learned? I've learned that the power of having an incredibly strong network saved perhaps my sanity and my mental health. I had been between YPO and just established clients who become friends um, and other individuals is just knowing I'm not alone. And these decisions are right has been huge. They've helped navigate PPP. They've helped navigate kind of other issues, the legal implications, the employee implications. How do I keep my employees safe? So for me, it's, it's really kind of forced me to really double down on, do I have a great network of people that in good times and in bad can help guide me through kind of these anxiety inducing moments. I would say going to the mental health side of things is if, if I could do one thing differently, I think I put everything into Goodellnet for this year. I would say I would look to myself and to others and to really be a leader in truly understanding just how much this war on every single person. I am externally an optimist who's always in a good mood, who's always doing these great things. But internally, it was only until our last day of the company where I told everybody, if 10 is great and zero is falling apart, I'm a five or six. And that's where I'm living right now. And I think being open and honest like that was was big for me. But it took me a while. And that's a lesson learned for me is talking about that way earlier, I think would have been important is to say even the most bright chipper guy who I truly have the most control of anything in the company, it wears on you. And to know that there is no clear end in sight, like that's an exhausting pretense. So I think for us, one of our big goals for this year is is understanding and managing our mental health, both as an employer, both for our leadership team and others, is figuring out a better way to do things because truly that's a big kind of part of the, the process. I would say kind of other things that themes that really kind of stood out is is really, again, taking care of the people that, that, that work for you. I think understanding what's the right amount of news to consume and what is what's being a, you know, a good steward of the company by reading the news and understanding where the implications are, what the forecasts are, but not also, you know, destroying my ability to focus on other things with the influx of 
predictions and forecasts and what it's going to be and how it's going to affect my business. It's just truly understanding, okay, there's there's a fine line between kind of saturating my brain with too much information and, and being well-informed. So I would say there's there's a lot of learnings that came along the way, but we survived. Obviously, we're not out of it yet, but we, we certainly have survived. And I'm very thankful for, I think, having really established values and a clear vision because the end of it that didn't change we didn't chase the shiny object we didn't chase the opportunity to let go of 10 percent of our staff right away and again we're very lucky and so listeners who didn't have that I, I certainly honor the hard decision you had to make but we didn't rush into any decisions and i was i was really proud of how we treated the whole thing you talk about uh, well-being and maintaining uh, your mental health and the employees throughout this whole challenge what have you found as a busy CEO with small children works well to really recharge your batteries? I'm still learning the answer to that question. Reading has always been a great one. I'm, I've always been the type of person that once I'm in a book, I kind of lose sight of everything else around me. And I've been that way since I was a kid. Kind of time can go past me. Kids can be yelling. and I'm still reading my, my nerdy little book. So reading has really been a great outlet because it kind of just takes you away from time and place and, and takes you to a, a, a different pathway, much more so than I think the Netflix binge watching, not to say that I didn't do a little bit of that as well. I think for me, the biggest thing with busy as it is, and my wife and I really kind of established this kind of concept of where are you right now? We actually didn't use a zero to 10, we use a zero to 100. And so I'd come come downstairs because we were both working, my wife works as well. You know, I come downstairs and I'm like, I'm a 40 right now. She's like, no, I'm, I'm cool. I'm a 70. So I'll, I'll help make dinner. You can go ahead and just play with the kids and just kind of, again, you don't have for, for the next 30 minutes, you have no main responsibilities. You can go wrestle with the kids or do whatever. Or I'm a 20, I'm going to go hang out up here and hide for 30 minutes. Or I'm 100 and I'm willing to commit. So I think for us, we've uh, it was hard to come up with words for emotions. Um, and maybe that's just because oh, I'm maybe a classic male. But you know, for us, the numbers thing, maybe that's my finance background, really kind of helped really qualify it. And I think that was probably the biggest keys to my mental health success is figuring out that is. I'm a long distance runner. I do ultra marathons. And running has always been a good outlet. So it's it's been a great to say, hey, I'm a 40 right now. I'd love to get a run in. And my wife steps up and, and helps. And the times where she comes in as a 40, you know, I let her have her time. So it really, it, again, it kind of created a language that we both understood. And I think that really kind of helped protect our sanity. And then having the number system within Goodellnet so I could feel comfortable talking to my executive team and not having to be the chipper CEO that thought every day was gonna be better. And knowing that you know, today's kind of a crappy day. And, and I I don't know why, but it is, and it's okay to have that emotion. And I think that was that was a big learning for me. That's uh, that's our strategy, and feel free to shamelessly steal. <laughs> I, I really like that. That's almost like taking your emotional temperature and and saying, "Am I running hot or am I running cold today?" And and what have I got left to give? That's that's uh, that's very good. That's a great approach. So let's talk a little bit about being a CEO, a young. CEO with uh, family responsibilities and, and other things. What about running GoodellNet as the CEO is very satisfying for you and, and makes it worth the effort? This is easy. This is the easiest question you've asked so far. I love creating a place that people want to work and become just a little bit better every day. At the end of it, that's what jazzes me up. I've never been, and I, this, again, this sounds trite, never been a big money guy, never been a big, you know, that's not my scorecard. But growth for me says there's 130 some people that work for my company that have families and lives and challenges and hobbies and all these really cool things that in some way, because of the decisions I made, hopefully mostly good. And I say I make, I, that's not acknowledging that that's a number of people in the company that really kind of help shape my, uh, my decision-making. You know, I've enabled that in some way. I've impacted that in some way. You know, those three goal, the three values of Goodellnet are my personal values that we've just now extended to the company. To know that people are holding themselves to a highly accountable standard and they're growing and they're figuring out ways to impact themselves and others, like that's pretty cool. I'm one person with, you know, 24 hours a day. So I, as an individual, can work my, you know, work off work. I can become this great runner. I can do this, this other stuff. But if I can help others do that, my impact is multiplied by 135. And, and that's a pretty cool feeling. So that, that's, what, that's what gets me out of bed every day. So what's your definition of success? The success of the company, I think, is continuing to really be a place that those values are 
lived and shared every single day. And I think that that for me is, is what success looks like. Personally, I think I'm, I'm building a company that hopefully I gain flexibility. So that for me is, is success. It's not, again, not the big paycheck, but I mentioned the running thing. I mentioned the kids. I mentioned my wife that I still like. I live in Indiana, but I'm a mountains guy. So creating space that I can do that. And I think COVID has helped do that in a little weird sort of way is, is kind of enabling how do you work from strange places. But success is how do I create a business that I could step away from, that I've created the next generation of brilliant people that are running the company, that I don't necessarily have to be the center of the decision-making process. And it's every year it's been closer and closer to that version of success. That truly is what that looks like at the, at the company level. And then for me personally, it's I think I have a lot of human potential and I want to make sure that every day I honor what I've been given and use that to its fullest capacity. So every run is a little bit, every race that I do is a little bit longer. Every challenge we create for the company is a little bit bigger. Every book that I read or quantity of books gets higher and higher. So I'm always kind of challenging myself to see what is the max of that potential. So not quite sure exactly how I can define success that way, but I would say maximizing that potential is, is huge. As your company grows and you're getting ready to add another location, how do you make sure that whatever conference room you're in, it's the same company? I think, you know, a big part of what we do is, and I talk a lot about is this idea of creating a shared vocabulary, is the words that we use in our Indianapolis office and our St. Louis office and this future office are going to be the same. We talk the same way. So we we do things like we have a leadership academy where it's a six-month program. And there's some amazing external programs that do an amazing job. But for me, one of the things I said, I want to run that. So as CEO, I actually run our leadership academy, which is incredibly time consuming, but allows me to sit in these meetings with all these new leaders and new individuals who want to contribute in a bigger way to Gedelnet. And we talk about Gedelnet and we talk about leadership and we talk about kind of strategies for personal growth. And we talk about the values, we talk about finance. And in those meetings, I've got four hours of time with 12 to 13 people in the company to talk through, I think, what makes us special. And those people go out and evangelize it in the way that I can't because A, COVID and B, just it's, you're kind of limited to, to your capacity. So, you know, for me, it's creating those evangelists and creating that common vocabulary. There's very few things that make me more jazzed up when I see like we have like a public board for calm cheers for peers, but it's a, essentially just a public space that people can kind of highlight, Hey, great job in that meeting yesterday. Or tackled a really tough problem, congratulates him with that, that they use words that I would have used in that, you know, you really made an impact there, which is a value, or you really kind of touched on X, which is a big, you know, goal for Gedelnet or, or whatever the case may be. So we spend a lot of time talking and reinforcing our values and our goals. We are an EOS, so attraction uh, shop. So we're open book on our financials. We publish our goals. We publish my goals. We publish what success looks like just so people see it all the time and are really reinforced by what that looks like so that we're all saying the same words. It's you know not easy by any stretch, but we've really kind of really focused on, again, what are, what are the words that make Adelna like Adelna? In the new hiring onboarding process, we really focus on people really truly understanding who we are so that people talk the same way. And I think that's a, that's a huge step to, to achieving that goal. Nick, tell us a couple of brief excerpts from your autobiography to date that, that really are sort of defining moments that made you who you are today. I think probably the best way to do this is touch on kind of perhaps the origin stories of, of the values. So you look at kind of where grow or die really came from. It's this uh, nerdy passion for reading and science and Math all came from two parents. My dad's a biochemistry PhD. My my mother kind of has had a number of different roles as a teacher and an administrator at, at more of the elementary level. And so I've kind of always grown up with that that education and learning is is really the key to everything. And, and I've really kind of lived that and now my kids kind of experience that on a day-to-day basis. And that really was the foundational story for Grow or Die. The idea of, of accountability comes back. I have a sister who has Down syndrome and kind of reminded uh, at every point of she was she was the oldest and then I was the next one so a lot of pressure in my mind of, of kind of being the person that had the, the right number of chromosomes so for me kind of given the gifts that I was given I have no patience for myself and thus you know in some capacity for others who don't use the gifts that you're given because many others uh, my sister included uh, would do anything to have the abilities that I was blessed with uh, at a young age. And then impact for me, you know, the, the cornerstone story that probably changed really 
a lot of this and really just kind of, I think, uh, high, let's take a giant, kind of, giant highlighter over my personal values is a, a really close friend of mine passed away when I was 17. And uh, it, it was one of those events that really kind of shaped me. It was an event where I really, I would say, kind of really kind of saw where his potential was as an individual and that that loss of, of where he could have impacted the world. And so I, I feel like a part of me carries that burden of maybe perhaps impacting twice as much uh, because of him. And I, I talk about I talk about it every once in a while at work. I believe in storytelling and I think, you know, he's certainly shaped my life significantly because of that. But I really kind of bring that every single day. I mean, that's that's been 20 years. And and that has, you know, significantly, like I said, kind of put a highlighter to who I am and where I believe I should be contributing because I'm here, I'm alive and I'm capable. So there's no excuses to not do some really cool things. You know, no organization ever grows uh, at a left-to-right hockey stick growth rate like we would anticipate. There's ups and downs and all-arounds. COVID, of course, proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt for any doubters out there. What uh, maybe is a story of how you guys have faced a, a significant adversity or challenge, and how did you overcome it? I think the one that comes to mind was when we formalized our core values. So take you back probably about 2014, really, we spent a lot of time figuring out how do we word it? What's the most important? What stands out? As I mentioned, there are, most of these are my personal values. So how do you articulate them in a way that I'm not force feeding my thought processes and others, but rather kind of creating something that everyone can really rally behind. And then the decision had to be made is, okay, we've got, I think at the time, probably about 20 to 25 employees. We looked at our roster and realized that seven to eight of them just didn't fit that. And I've never, as, as a leader, have had to terminate a group of people. It's always been you know, individual performance issues. We, we, we have a very formalized process for managing to that. And I would say the hardest decision I've had to make was we, within a three and a half week span, let go of all seven to eight, which again, when you have 25 people, actually when we have 135 people, seven to eight would be just devastating, who are all working hard to lose 40% of your company to clients and to the culture itself, what message does that send? And it was a really tough six months to rebuild. We really kind of had to make sure we truly, we understood what we were looking for in the next hires because those next hires had to be perfect because of the big decision that we had to make. We had clients that left us because we were not meeting kind of response time needs and just generalized needs because we just didn't have enough people. And it was a really tough six months. I would say, again, if, if I look at like probably the most anxious, stressed time of, of the company was really during that time as we kind of rebuilt to who we are now. For the most part, it's been, it's been smooth sailing from that perspective uh, since that point, give or take. Again, the brain is really good at forgetting the rough edges. But on the whole, that was, again, I would say if I have to look at the one part of that line that's kind of jumbled up with a big giant X on it, I would say that that was that six month period of losing clients, losing employees, losing trust in others that I knew what I was doing. That was, that was a tough one. So you're a fan of books. What would be the title of that story? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, something about hard decisions or value your values uh, like that. Basically saying values are meaningless unless you're willing to make the hard decisions to honor them. So uh, I'll, I'll defer to my marketing person. Going back to what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, this would not be one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know you'll be good at this. I, I sense oh, no. this. So what would be the moral of the story? I think, again, honestly, the moral of the story is, is again, what really COVID taught us is if you are stating something as a, as a business leader, as something that is important, clarity creates confidence. And the moral of the story is this is the standard we hold ourselves to. And in any deviation from that standard shows that there is no standard. And I think what we, we, we ended up proving out through long nights and a lot of apologies is we set a standard and we held ourselves to that standard. So you, you look, at the, look at the race, we had to take a bunch of steps backwards, but it propelled us forward. And again, if you look at our growth curve, really big decline for two quarters and then we haven't, we haven't had a, a decline quarter ever since that point. So ultimately, it does pay off. But if, if it's truly important, 
and you create a value and you allow others to, to violate those values or even worse, yourself violate those values, you have now deemed those as unnecessary. You've just wasted however level of effort you had to create that. I'm a big believer that as people develop their core values, it's probably the biggest decision they make as a business leader because every decision has to run through that filter. And if it doesn't accurately, then people are going to call you out on it. And all of a sudden, credibility goes down really quick. So according to Gallup, people look for four things from their leaders, trust, stability, compassion, and hope. Where do you find your hope, especially coming out of this COVID situation, to get up in the morning and get back at it? I think for me, it goes back to really why I get out of bed in general, which is this idea of building these future people where they've hopefully found a great place to work. And as we all know, you've, you have a good place to work. You end up just by, by default being a better spouse and a friend, and you're just generally happier. We had 31 promotions last year, which means 31 people are in a position that hopefully makes them a little bit uncomfortable. And seeing that emerge as the future of this company, that's hope for me. I have two individuals that just moved into C-level roles, and I'm incredibly proud of both of them. They both came in as individual contributors six years ago, and now they're essentially running two halves of the business. That gives me hope. It gives me hope for the 25-year-olds who's in there, who joins every committee, who's part of everything, to think, ah, that's our, that's our future VP or C-level person in the company in five to 10 years. That's pretty neat. And because we're doing that, they're championing causes that are so important to me. Again, my wife and I can donate and, and, and donate our time. But if, if we get 135 people, soon to be 250 people, soon to be 500 people that really believe in what we believe, man, our impact is cool. And, and that is what gives me hope is I get out of bed because I, 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 my, my capacity and capabilities to, to grow a company and, and do bigger and better things has continued to prove out as, as something that we're capable of doing. And that's pretty neat. So that's, that's what gets me, that's what gives me, and that's, that's my sense of hope on the, on the tough days. What's got you most excited about the future? I would say travel and, and hopping, on, uh, hopping on an airplane at some point here soon. I would say the future, there is, uh, going back to the B Corp thing, people are buying and making purchasing decisions on a number of characteristics. I think at the end of the day, having a good quality product is is anti at this point. You know, it gets you, it's, it gets you in the game. It's, it's why you survive COVID crisis. It's why you survive year after year of even great economies still weed out the bad businesses. But at the end of the day, like that's just anti. People are choosing and, and you know voting every day with their dollar. And I think the future of this world is this concept, I think that people want to work with businesses that are doing good. They want to run businesses that are doing good. And I think kind of this younger generation, and, and again, certainly, you know, peppered in with the older generation, but call it, call it what you want for some of their faults. They see a bigger picture in this kind of obligation to be good stewards of the lives that they were given. And I think now more than I felt that ever in the history of Goodell ownership, is there's more and more people out there that are looking to do good. And I think as we challenge ourselves to be better, companies are going to start doing bigger and better things. And people are going to be more B Corps out there. And there's going to be more employees forcing their employers to be giving back and doing really neat things and expecting great places to work. And I think just this, this bar continues to rise. And I'm excited for the future where that's where we're not an anomaly. I'm not on this podcast because you think we're different. I'm on this podcast for other reasons, but you know, I'm one of, of many companies that are doing what we're trying to do. And I think that's, that's about as cool as it gets. So the person that's been with us in this conversation so far, and maybe they're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a, some sort of a social enterprise or maybe even a B Corp, what challenge would you issue to them? I would just, the challenge I would be is, 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 this goes back to perhaps the YPO question of, of why do you do this is the, the first time you are going to hit an obstacle, you're going to wonder what can you cut as a, as a leader, your job is to take a dollar and figure out the best way to put it. So you make a dollar five. And if I could cost cut costs, my challenge to you is in good times and in bad is to maintain the course of what and why you got into the business in the first place and not let a global pandemic 
or a tough six months or the inevitable tough times that you run across as a business owner deter you from, again, living the purpose that you that you stated as a business leader or somebody who's interested in becoming a B Corp. Because at the end of it, your credibility skyrockets if you hold that true during tougher times. And I think you're just, your, your level of impact goes up. So kind of holding, holding steady, I think is just, will prove out to be more impactful than anything else. So if we hired a documentary team to follow you around for a month and we tried to find enough evidence to support the title of the documentary called It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint, what would we see? I would say just this the, the concept of little things that I do every day to become a little bit better. So I go back to my reading. I go back to the way that I treat breakfast and dinner with my family and spending time with them, knowing that I'm giving up an hour and a half at each end of working where I could probably get you know six or seven more things done or 15 or 20 more emails done, but I choose to, to invest in my family. I would look at, again, my running where every week I'm running you know, five, 10% more and continuing to build on build on those skill sets. I mentioned, the, again, they're going back to the reading part is, is this acknowledgement that I, I don't know what I'm doing all the times and, and finding holes in what I do. I would just say, again, if, if, if you look at my life, hopefully as part of that documentary, you're seeing kind of tangible little actions that are hopefully making me a better person. I just got a, a new aura ring that's hopefully going to give me more data about Again, my stress levels and, and how I'm feeling and, and whether I'm optimized for that day. I am always geeking out on the newest and latest either technology or trend or I'm trying veganism for three weeks just to see if that makes me feel better. I'm trying out XYZ for a month. I'm meditating. I'm trying journaling. You know, I, I, there's a lot of cool things out there. Some of it work for me. Some of it won't. And I think you would see in that documentary me trying a bunch of things deciding some of them become part of my life story and shuttling the other ones away. And me just kind of building up these little experiences that make me who I am today and who I'll be 20 years from now. And that's what makes you a hopeful Hoosier. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You have a tremendous story and a very bright future ahead. Thanks for being here. Well, I'm honored. Thank you for the time. Special thanks to Nick Smorelli for being my guest on today's episode. You can learn more about GoodellNet Consulting Services at GoodellNet, let me spell that, G-A-D-E-L-L-N-E-T dot com. I hope you'll accept Nick's challenge to do your part to make a better and brighter future for us here in the state of Indiana. If you've enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate your favorable ratings and comments wherever you download your podcasts. They're very helpful in spreading our hopeful message to others. If you know a hopeful Hoosier who would make an outstanding guest, please email me at andy at adgrowthadvisors.com. Our theme music is an original composition by musician, composer, author, speaker, and licensed therapist, Indianapolis' own George Middleton. Until next episode, I'm Andy Dix, your hopeful Hoosier host. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching and advisory firm. Visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, copyright 2021 by AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, all rights reserved.